0: Welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor of the Lancet Psychiatry. It's the 18th of June, and today we're going to be talking about some very sensitive and complex topics, adverse events, risk, and stigma in mental health care. When I was a medical student, I remember very clearly a lecturer talking to my class about adverse events in psychiatry. Now, at the time, most of us were worried about risk in terms of procedures and surgery going wrong or medical diagnoses being missed we hadn't given much thought to risk in mental health at all. This lecturer said that even with the best practice, adverse events happened, and when they did, it was a difficult, indeed often a devastating experience for practitioners, to say nothing of the effects on the family and the loved ones involved. What were, numerically speaking, comparatively rare events, nevertheless shook the confidence of psychiatrists in their own work and the confidence of the general public in the mental health system as a whole. So what can be done about events such as suicide, homicide and premature death. Why do these events happen and to what extent can they be predicted? How can mental health professionals help patients to manage these risks? And how can we talk about these issues without adding to the level of stigma that patients already face? I'm joined today by three experts in the field of mental health. Would you like to introduce yourselves?
1: Robin Murray, I'm a professor of psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry in Maudsley Hospital in London and I do research and also look after people with psychosis.
2: I'm Matt Sina-Fazal, I'm a Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow based at the Department of Psychiatry, University of Oxford and I also do research and look after currently patients
3: And I'm Stefan Leucht. I'm a psychiatry professor from Munich, Germany,
0: currently on a sabbatical in England. Thank you very much. So we'll start off with a bit of context from uh, Robin. The past 100 years have seen a real shift in the model of mental health care from inpatient to outpatient based. I wonder if you could just talk us through that and outline some of the benefits and indeed the challenges that have arisen as a result. So I
1: think the move really started in the 1950s with the introduction of antipsychotics that made it possible for people to be treated in the community and then got an impetus, further impetus from the Italian laws in the late 70s when they really abolished inpatient long-term care and in some ways that was relatively successful. We now know retrospectively that one of the reasons for that is that incidence of psychosis And schizophrenia in Italy is lower than in more northern countries. So in the UK, we've moved from having about, or in England, we've moved from having about 170,000 inpatient psychiatric beds back in the 50s to now having something uh, around 20,000 or so. That has had both, That patients of course are much preferred to be in the community. Do not want to be in inpatient wards, which many of which are not very pleasant. But there's also been some disadvantages, and these are most dramatically seen in the USA, where I think community psychiatry has been a disaster. That people have been moved from long-term inpatient care into prisons and onto the streets. Anyone who has visited. San Francisco, for example, would just see numerous homeless, hallucinating people on the streets. And how psychiatrists managed to ignore this in the United States, I do not know.
0: Thank you Robin. And one of the more recent developments in the UK has been the introduction of uh, crisis teams or home treatment teams who effectively provide a service uh, treating people in the community who might otherwise have been admitted or indeed shortening uh, an admission to uh, a mental health unit. One of the papers which we psychiatry like, talks about some of the risks associated with crisis care. I want what, what your thoughts are on that model. I'm
1: enthusiastic about people being treated in the community and uh, personally I don't think the risk is that much greater than uh, people in, in being hospitalized. I chaired a panel called the Schizophrenia Commission for two years here in the UK and patients spoke very warmly about home treatment teams. They liked it, liked it very, very much. There is one danger and that is that you split up continuity of care. So in the UK it's possible instead of being treated uh, with continuity of care it's possible to get shunted from one type of treatment your own psychiatrist to a crisis team to a triage unit to a private hospital back to a rehabilitation unit all in the space of a few weeks. So there are again pros and cons but if we can keep people out of hospital then we stop we, they prefer it, and we stop them having the disadvantages of being uh, institutionalized.
0: Sina, if I could just bring you into the discussion. Uh, you published a paper recently in The Lancet Psychiatry that looked at some of the factors associated with adverse events, and I wonder if you could give us a brief summary of what you did and what you found. So
2: what we did is we, we looked at um, everyone in, in Sweden, where Sweden we chose because Sweden has um, very high-quality registers, and you can link these registers um, Uh, across different years, but also you can link registers uh, that are held by um, different authorities, including social care, medical registers, and and crime registers. And what we did is we we linked them, and and we looked over 38 years, what's been happening to people with schizophrenia and related disorders. Um, And we did a, a... Two or three things. One very simple thing is we just uh, described what the prevalence is of these adverse events. And and we, um, unlike what most people have done in the past, which is separate out violence from suicide, from death, we we actually looked at any of these adverse events at one, two, and five years after um, diagnosis. And we found in men, for instance, that after one year it was 4%, after two years it was 8%, and after five years, it was 14%. So in terms of um, uh, absolute rates of these events, these are quite high, really, and I think um, important to bear in mind um, for, 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 for the field, really. Um, the, the second thing we did is we, we looked at whether there were any determinants of these outcomes, which were shared across the outcomes, and, and also shared across populations, because what we, one of the things we did is we looked at um, whether the same risk factors predicted adverse outcomes in the unaffected siblings. So these are the siblings of the patients with schizophrenia, um, uh, but, but uh, siblings without the illness. And, and we also looked at whether the same risk factors were present in the general population. And what was interesting in that is that we did find some shared risk factors. So they were shared across these outcomes. So for violent, de- uh, violent crime, suicide, and premature mortality, there were three risk factors that um, seem to predict these outcomes, the drug use disorders before diagnosis, previous violent crime and uh, previous self-harm. And these are the same factors that also predicted these outcomes in the, in the other two groups, the unaffected siblings and the uh, general population. So um, that's potentially interesting because it says something about whether you can
0: actually intervene at a population level to reduce these outcomes for everyone, not just patient groups. That's interesting. So if we're thinking about reducing risk of these adverse events you've described as a whole, perhaps it helps to think outside traditional categories a bit and to look at factors commonly associated with adverse outcomes across the whole population, not just people in contact with mental health services.
2: Absolutely. And it may well be that um, in, in some settings that's that's the most appropriate way, and it may be that, you know, cost-effectively as well, it's the most cost-effective way to to, to nudge the the whole population a little bit towards reducing these adverse outcomes. There still may well be a a role for targeted interventions. So, I mean, um, uh, Professor Murray was talking about... um, prisons and homeless people, and it may be that there are these high-risk groups that benefit from some targeted interventions. And interesting enough, in, in, in the U.S., um, the three largest institutions with um, patients with severe mental illness happen to be three prisons, one in New York State, one in Chicago, one in L.A., which have the the the, the, the um, highest number of, of uh, patients with severe mental illness. So it may well be that you know in in, in some places that you actually target those interventions as well.
0: Well, thanks. That uh, really leads us on to the final question, and it's the one which is very relevant for policymakers and, and clinicians. And that's what we can do about preventing adverse events, and if and if we can do it at all, indeed. And what we can do without infringing on people's rights or playing into the rather stigmatizing narrative of people with mental health problems as being dangerous. And, and, and to answer this, I wonder if I could bring you into the discussion, please, Stefan.
2: Let
3: me first talk a little bit about the pharmacological interventions, because this is what I know most about. And there really, I think it's important for clinicians to know that there is not uh, much uh, in terms of specific treatments. So in terms of suicide, in schizophrenia, clozapine, is the only drug that has been shown to be more efficacious. This was the famous intercept study. In bipolar bipolar disorder, it's now uh, pretty well replicated that lithium prevents suicides. This has been shown by different meta-analyses from different groups, which I find very important, uh, that we also have replications and meta-analyses. And when we talk about aggression, I think much has been said about mood stabilizers and second-generation antipsychotics, uh, but again, the efficacy uh, and the evidence is not uh, really there. Um, So again, in terms of schizophrenia, clozapine is the only drug uh, which, in, in my recollection, has really been tested in patients with both schizophrenia and chronic hostility, and it was more efficacious than olanzapine and haloperidol in this regard. And I find that very important because most of the other other evidence is really indirect. This is derived from studies that looked at the treatment of schizophrenia in general. And all the superiorities that have been found in terms of aggression in these trials could just be a general superiority of the drugs versus other drugs, but not specific to aggression. Very interestingly, uh, lead to link back to Sina Faisal's work, uh, he, he recently found in a paper in The Lancet, That um, And again, using the Swedish registers, so population-based, no selection factors, that clozapine was the best drug to avoid aggression uh, in schizophrenia and the mood stabilizers really only worked in uh, bipolar disorder patients, but not in schizophrenia.
0: And um, do you have any thoughts on possible public health interventions, population-level interventions that uh, Sina was talking about?
3: Well, let me put it like this. Uh, In Germany, we do not have that. Germany is one of the countries which still uh, sticks to the hospitalization. And therefore, in Germany, I think there are big concerns. And sometimes, as we do not have the experience, we are really a little bit scared. Is it really possible uh, that we deinstitutionalize? And is it really possible to keep suicidal patients, patients uh, with a history of aggression in the community? So I really want to uh, give that back to Robin and and, uh, Sina if you have more experience
0: uh, in this question. Okay, Uh, Robin, would you like to, to come in on that? Well, first of all, I'd like
1: to comment on Sina's finding in Sweden that one of the risk factors was drug abuse. Now, drug abuse is quite uncommon in Sweden. For example, only 3%. Of Swedish adolescents, uh, have used cannabis as opposed to something like 30% in the in the UK. So I imagine that the predictive power of drug abuse would be much higher in in many other countries, and I think this is the this colours so much of what we see in. In acute psychosis nowadays, that people are, people are becoming psychotic who wouldn't otherwise become psychotic, and they're also more disturbed and more violent. So I think public health campaigns educating young people, not also the not so young, about the risks of uh, illicit drugs and can- cannabis in particular, which many people believe is not really a drug but a natural substance. It is a natural substance, but it th- can also send you psychotic.
0: Okay, Sina, what do you think about that cannabis and drug risks?
2: Yes, I mean, I think I think that's very important. I mean, it seems to me that you know some of the population health interventions, population-based interventions, need to focus at schools. Um, they they may also focus at people who um, may be contacting primary care with you know the beginnings of some symptoms, and so thinking not just purely about. Worrying so much about, you know, treating any emergent hallucinations and delusions is obviously important, but you need to think about sort of the wider context. So, you know, are they people that are suicidal and starting to self-harm? Are they getting involved with um, peers who, who 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 introduce them to drugs? Um, and and you know, keeping them out of criminal justice it, it seems to be to be three very important messages, sort of simple messages that can be. T- you know said to um, uh, to school based uh, programs, but also primary care and may also be relevant to early intervention services you know there 's a movement around the world to to try and pick up um, people very early on in, in the development of psychosis and and, and those services could focus also on, on dealing with drug problems and the risks that, that, that Robin has highlighted, which, are, which seem to be so clear about the um, risk, not, not only
0: for their illness getting worse, but also for the adverse consequences um, secondary to their illness. Stefan, uh, what are your views on early intervention?
3: I think... Uh Again, talking a little bit about about the pharmacology, I think um, the major adverse events there is the mortality, which is increased in so many psychiatric disorders compared to the general population and there my take is um, probably it is uh, in part due to the drugs that we are uh, with which we are treating the patients, and there, in my opinion it 's all about prevention and uh Using the right drugs, if possible, from the start, because I think that all these programs that we have on uh, weight gain uh, reduction and so on and so forth, I think once it has happened, it is very difficult to lose weight, for example. So I think prevention should really be key in in the treatments that we choose for our patients.
0: I'd like to, to finish, really. With with perhaps a, a controversial question for Robin, you mentioned your work with the Schizophrenia Commission and, as I remember, one of the aims of the Commission was to review public attitudes uh, towards uh, mental illness and specifically schizophrenia. Uh, are people, clinicians, the media, indeed medical journals, perhaps uh, too fixated on risk in mental health care?
1: Well, we certainly believe that and this may be particularly in the UK where we have the dubious benefits of... Uh, Rather hysterical tabloids who delight in putting uh, a headline uh, psycho kills so and so" across the, the the front page, and in spite of the fact that uh, in many ways it's the general population who have been increasing their homicide rate rather rather than uh, than psychiatric patients, so. I, I do think that stigma is a, a very a very big issue. One of the ways in which I think we should address it is by demonstrating that it's not as if ninety eight percent of the population are sane and two percent are mad. We now know that psychosis is distributed through the population like blood pressure or weight. So there are many people walking around the street who have never seen a psychiatrist who have quite mad ideas they believe other people are against them i uh, they are hearing voices i uh, and at times of stress many of us go into a brief psychotic episode so i think we should uh, focus on the on the fact that the the mentally ill or the psychotic are not they're not different from the rest of us they just by happen chance their genetic uh, Load or the the environment in which they account for they are pushed into a psychotic, psychotic episode and there but for the grace of God might go the rest of us
0: so really what the story which begins in institutions ends up very much embedded in the community as a whole
1: Yes, the, the reason why we think that schiz- people with schizophrenia or psychotic people are different to the rest of the population is that psychiatry developed in the institutions and mm-hmm. these big asylums had walls around them and therefore the population thought the mad ones are behind the wall mm-hmm. and the sane ones are are, are outside. But you only have to look at our political leaders and uh, some of the difficulties say uh, that, uh, that our politicians get into to realise that paranoia is not uh, confined to the mental ill.
0: Thank you, Robin. Now, as, as ever, we could probably keep going on this subject for far longer. So for now, many thanks again to my three guests and many thanks to you for downloading and listening to this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.